You are now listening to the July 14th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, our topics are the history of the Biblio, the sex spiral, and grace upon grace. We will begin with the history of the Biblio. This program will examine how the Bible was recorded, inspect the archaeological evidence, as well as the different languages it has been translated into. Hello everyone, this is Jisoo Kang from the History of the Biblio. As the second episode of History of the Biblio, we will talk about the period of documentation of the Bible and the language the Bible was first written in. The word Bible in English originates from a Greek term, ta biblia, which means books. Like its original meaning, the Bible is a collection of many books, letters, poems, and historical reports. As many of you already know, the Bible consists of 39 books in the Old Testament and 27 in the New. About 40 writers were involved with this process, and their backgrounds range from kings, priests, scholars, farmers, to doctors. Although different scholars present varying points, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, is thought to be written around 1400 BC, to when Nehemiah and Malachi are estimated to be written at around 400 BC. That makes the entirety of the Old Testament to have been written in a span of 1,000 years. The New Testament was written in a relatively much shorter time. James was written in approximately 50 AD and the book of Revelation at around 90 AD, making them both written in roughly 40 years. Likewise, the Bible was written over more than 1,000 years by various people with diverse backgrounds and in varying time periods. But despite the incredibly wide span of time, the message and the content stay consistent. As 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 explains, that this is due to God's power. Moreover, 2 Peter testifies, quote, For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. End quote. This clarifies that though the Bible was written through humans in human language, it was not written with human intentions or plans, but through the moving of the Holy Spirit to record God's plan. Therefore, the authoritative writer for the Bible is our God, but he used people to write the Bible. The Bible was originally written in three languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. The majority of the Old Testament was written in Hebrew with a bit of Aramaic. In contrast, the New Testament was written in Greek. As many of you already know, Hebrew was a language the Jews used and Aramaic was used by conquerors of Israel like Assyrians, Babylonians, and Persians. Israelites began to use Aramaic over Hebrew starting from the period of Persian control over Israel. Even in the New Testament age, Jesus used Aramaic with such words as Abba, Talitakum, Maranatha, as well as what Jesus said on the cross, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. 
If the Jews used Aramaic from the period of captivity to Jesus' time, why is the New Testament written in Greek instead of Aramaic? That is because Greek was more widely used during the New Testament age and therefore was more efficient and effective in spreading the word. The time when Greek became the official language of many nations dates back to 4th century BC. With King Alexander conquering the numerous countries during this time, Greek spread throughout and Koina was created. Koina Greek was rather simple and uncomplicated, so it became a way of communication even between many merchants in different nations, thus becoming an international language. Although Rome established Latin as the official language, many in assorted regions used Greek as an everyday language. With these circumstances, the New Testament being written in Greek instead of Hebrew or Aramaic was appropriate and practical because the audience of the New Testament was not limited to the Jews, but included Gentiles all over the world. If the New Testament age had a Greek New Testament Bible, how did the Jews and Gentiles understand the Old Testament written in Hebrew? Thankfully, there was already a translated Old Testament. The Septuagint is a name for the Old Testament translated into Greek and the first translation of the Old Testament Bible. When the Septuagint was translated in the 3rd century BC, a lot of Jews did not use Hebrew. While the Jews used Hebrew, it was not imperative for the Old Testament to be translated into different languages. But because of the influences and impact powerful nations had over Israel, the Jews began to lose their understanding of the Hebrew language. At the moment when the Old Testament was translated into Greek, not only the Jews, but also the Gentiles could then read the Bible. It was such an amazing providence of God. Jesus said this to the disciples after he rose from the dead. Quote, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 As Jesus said, He sent the Holy Spirit to the disciples and believers after ascending to heaven. And as the word declares, the disciples and believers spread around the world to testify and preach the gospel. All the places they went to preach the gospel, they carried the Septuagint and the New Testament Bible in Greek. The Great Commission still applies to us today. And until the command comes to fruition, the Bible will be preserved and will be translated into the languages everywhere the Bible reaches. Until then, I hope that you and I will live a witnessing life of Jesus, and we will bring the Bible to every nation and language. I will see you again at the same time. Goodbye. As the hands spin, thou for.
Coming up next is a podcast series, The Sex Spiral, led by Pastor Dustin Daniels of Purity Ministry from Phoenix, Arizona. The program addresses sex with biblical grace and truth, without the shock value, and is a resource for anyone looking for biblical answers to pornography, singleness, marriage, family, and children. This program may contain mature language and subject matter. Welcome to God, Sex, and You, a daily discipleship podcast on healthy sexuality. Here's your host, Purity Pastor, Dustin Daniels. Everyone who has viewed pornography for an extended period of time 
begins to experience a level of frustration. Now, we may not realize that we're becoming more and more frustrated, that our patience is getting shorter and shorter. But if you would ask your spouse, if you're married, ask some of your coworkers that you hang out with, anyone that you spend time with, they're going to tell you that something has been wrong. Something's different. Frustration, after all, is just anger on a low simmer. It's just a matter of time before that very short fuse of ours, it gets lit and our anger is just unleashed. Have you ever wondered why? Why is that? How and why would extended viewing of pornography change us like that? Well, anger is trigger number 11 in the sex spiral. There are 12 triggers total And now we are just one trigger away from hopelessness and despair. This podcast featuring anger is part one of three, and it comes from a teaching series titled The Sex Spiral, Forgiven and Free from Pornography. And yes, you can be both, I promise. It will change your life. It will. But it's based on one condition is that you start applying this stuff. You start small and you walk slow and you trust God with everything that you have. The sex spiral is a set of awareness triggers that explain the location as to where you are inside this habit, inside this bondage or addiction to pornography. In today's podcast, we're going to discuss several different things. Number one, the four different sources of anger, and number two, the two different types of anger. So let's get started with today's lesson. This is why porn makes you angry. The Apostle Paul writes, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable, it's not resentful, but it does, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, it rejoices with the truth. And love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love never ends. When I was a child, I, I spoke like a child and I, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, but when I became a man, I gave up my childish ways. Father, I pray that as we talk about anger tonight, that we understand what love really is. That we are to be more patient and kind. That we're not supposed to envy or boast, not to be arrogant, rude. We're supposed to be kind and reflect who you are. The King of Kings and the Prince of Peace. Not just to other people or co-workers, but to our family, our children, and if we're married to our wives. So Lord, once again, please soften our hearts and sharpen our minds tonight. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, trigger number 11, anger. There are four common sources of anger. Number one is hurt. Your heart has been wounded when it's hurt. 
So everyone has a, a God-given need for unconditional love. And when we experience rejection or emotional pain, that causes hurt. So you'll see the text there, Genesis 37, 3 and 4. Jacob loved his youngest son, Joseph, more than any of the other sons, right? So the brothers were okay with that, right? They didn't mind his dad loving the youngest son more than the other brothers. I think they minded just a little bit, right? So there was, Joseph experienced hurt in that. So much so that they tried to kill him and leave him for dead, right? There's obviously a lot of anger wrapped up in that story. But at the end of the day, Joseph was deeply wounded and deeply hurt by them. Number two is injustice. We become angry when our rights have been violated. Everyone has a knowledge of right and wrong, fair and unfair, just and unjust. And when you perceive an injustice, you're going to feel angry. 1 Samuel 20 there listed on your outline is when Jonathan is talking to King Saul. And he's, he's trying to figure out why King Saul is so jealous of, of David. King Saul loses his mind and almost kills his son. But Jonathan, there was an injustice there when he was, he was trying to protect David because David didn't do anything wrong. Saul was a lunatic at that point as well, right? When you start throwing spears at, at people, there seems to be an anger issue on both sides. Number three is fear. When your, your future is threatened. Everyone is created with an inner need for God-given security. And when you begin to worry or feel threatened... You're responding to fear. So 1 Samuel 18, King Saul saw that the, that the Lord was with David. So King Saul wasn't happy about that. And then Michael, who was Saul's daughter, loved David. So King Saul freaked out because he was fearful for his own future. And when you get fearful, you start doing irrational things if you're not grounded. Because at the end of the day, it, it sounds really trite when you're in the middle of a, a storm or a trial, right? But God really is in control of this stuff. So number three is fear. That will make you angry. And then number four, frustration. Frustration is, is when your performance is not accepted. Everyone has a God-given inner desire for significance. So frustration over unmet expectations, either of yourself or of others, is a major source of anger. So Genesis 4 is when Cain and Abel bring their first gifts to the Lord, and the Lord accepts one and rejects the other. Cain went away very angry. He was angry. He was frustrated. So there are two types of anger on your outline there. There's righteous anger and unrighteous anger. And we'll define those here in a second. But did you guys know that God gets angry? Psalm 7, 11, and I've got these key scriptures um, on your outline there. Psalm 7, 11 says, God is an honest judge. He is angry with the wicked every single day. Did you know that the believers, that we 
are commanded to be angry. Ephesians 4.26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. But the question is, commanded to be angry over what? So over those, over those four common sources of anger that we just listed, which one are we supposed to be angry about? Injustice. It says injustice. Any other takers? Injustice. Injustice, yeah. I mean, good examples of, of injustice are obviously any type of child abuse, domestic violence, racism, abortion, uh, you know, the things that matter to God. That's an injustice. Turn your Bibles to 2 Samuel 12. So the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to tell David this story. He said, there were two men in a certain town. One was rich and one was poor. The rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle. The poor man owned nothing but one little lamb that he had bought. He raised that little lamb. He, he grew up with, it, it grew up with children. It ate from the man's own plate and drank from his own cup. He cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. And one day a guest arrived at his home of the rich man. But instead of killing an animal from his own flock, he took the poor man's lamb and killed it and prepared it for his guest. Verse 5. When David heard the story, he was furious. As surely as the Lord lives, he vowed, any man who, who would do such a thing deserves to die. He must repay four lambs to the poor man for the one that he stole and have no pity. So is that righteous or unrighteous anger? Righteous. It says righteous. Sounds vengeful on David's part. Of course, when we continue the story, what happens? Nathan goes, well, you're the guy. You're the guy that took the lamb. And then he was convicted. And one, you got to admit one thing about King David was that he repented quickly. King David sinned greatly by committing adultery with a woman named Bathsheba. Now, you may or may not know the story, but one thing that we usually don't hear about is that this act of adultery it wasn't just two consenting adults having fun. No, 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 no. See, King David, who's known as a man after God's own heart, he actually raped this woman. She was physically taken from her home and brought to his bedroom for one purpose. I mean, what was she going to do? Was she going to tell the king no? And if that wasn't heinous enough, King David then finds out that Bathsheba is pregnant because, you know, that's always a possibility when you have sex. And he goes through this long, detailed plan to cover up his own sin. And when that plan doesn't work, he actually has Bathsheba's husband murdered. So here we see how misplaced passion works, don't we? Sin always leads to more sin. And once again, this is a guy, this is a man known for slaying Goliath because of his love and his passion for God. In today's lesson, did you hear how the prophet Nathan made King David angry with his story about the lamb? God has a, a funny way of exposing our sin, doesn't he? I mean, yes, King David sinned greatly. But here's the thing about David is that he also repented quickly. And that, that is such a huge lesson for us to learn. 
we don't have to stay angry. We can actually exit this spiral, this sex spiral, by confessing our sin. And the faster that we confess, the faster we're back under the safety of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast that viewing pornography over an extended period of time makes us angry. Have you thought about why? I define pornography as viewing people made in the image of God being sexually abused for my entertainment. See, sex is incredibly sacred, but when it's abused, it's also incredibly profane. See, God didn't create us to watch sex. He created us to participate in it with our spouse, one biological man and one biological woman in a covenant relationship called marriage for life. So if you find yourself frustrated, maybe you find yourself angry, knowing that you've watched porn for years or decades, you realize that now. The good news is that now you know. And since you you know, you can now choose to do something different. You can choose to do something holy. So let me ask you to do this. Why don't you make a note to visit CovenantEyes.com today? By making this decision, you're not just placing a filter on your digital devices. You're not just protecting yourself from pornography. What you're actually doing is you're choosing to not be angry anymore. And man, that sounds like a good plan. I've been using Covenant Eyes for years So let me encourage you to visit CovenantEyes.com today. And when you do, you're going to receive a 30-day free trial. All you have to do is put my full name in the promo box with no spaces. And when you sign up, you're also supporting the ministry of Seven Places and this podcast. Thank you so much for listening to God, Sex, and You. I'm Dustin Daniels. If you're in Phoenix... I want to invite you to our weekly grace group. It's a community group for men and women, husbands and wives. Everybody is welcome. So you're invited to listen to God with us every Tuesday night. 7 p.m. is when we start. It's at Northern Hills Community Church, and we are located in Building A, Room 301. You can follow me on Twitter at Purity Pastor. And if you have a question, I'd love to hear from you. Send it in. Email me your questions at DustinDanielsRadio.com. 1 Corinthians 4.20, the Apostle Paul writes, The kingdom of God isn't just a lot of talk. It's living. We're not just going to talk about this stuff. We're going to live in God's power. And that power, the power that will change you, the power is in the very name that name and the and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. I love you and I look forward to our time again tomorrow. I will not fear the war
71% of teens have admitted to hiding what they do online from their parents. This is just one of the many, many reasons I believe it's so important to protect all of our devices with covenant eyes. I've been using it for years, and if you do not have protection on all of your uh, computers and cell phones and tablets, let me encourage you. Visit CovenantEyes.com today. Receive a 30-day free trial when you use my name, Dustin Daniels, with no spaces in that promo box. Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor David Platt of Radical. Today's topic is why reformers died in their day and how we must live ours. Part 2, based on Psalms chapter 51. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor David. Do we realize what these men were dying for? J.C. Ryle wrote a paper entitled The Burning of Our English Reformers and the Reason Why They Were Burned. And his paper so struck me because in it he wrote, listen to this. He said, great indeed would be our mistake if we suppose that these martyrs suffered for the vague charge of refusing submission to the Pope or desiring to maintain the independence of the church in England. Nothing of the kind. The principal reason why they were burned was because they refused one of the peculiar doctrines of the Romish church. On that doctrine, in almost every case, hinge their life or death. If they admitted it, they might live. If they refused it, they must die. He continued, the doctrine in question was the real presence of the body and blood of Christ and the consecrated elements of bread and wine in the Lord's Supper. Did they or did they not believe that the body and blood of Christ were really, that is corporally, Literally, locally, materially present under the forms of bread and wine after the words of consecration were pronounced. Did they or did they not? That was the simple question. If they did not believe and admit it, they were burned. And it's true. John Rogers recounted his interrogation by the church saying, I was asked whether I believed in the sacrament to be the very body and blood of our Savior Christ that was born of the Virgin Mary and hanged on the cross. Really and substantially, I answered, I think it to be false. I cannot understand really and substantially to signify otherwise than corporally. But corporally, Christ is only in heaven. And so Christ cannot be corporally in your sacrament. Same statement was made by subsequent men and women. Church leaders, common laborers, Rollins White. This is a fisherman. He couldn't read. And so he had his son taught to read so that every night his family would gather around the table after dinner and the boy would read the New English Bible to the family. In the course of doing so, he came to belief in salvation through faith in God's mercy. When his belief became public, he was condemned to die. History tells us he came to the place where his poor wife and children stood weeping. The sight of them so pierced his heart. Tears trickled down his face. When everything was ready, they set white on the stake, erected a stand upon which a priest stepped up and began speaking about the Catholic doctrine of the sacraments. White, a fisherman, cries out to the priest, You wicked hypocrite. Do you presume to prove your false doctrine by Scripture? Look at the text. Fisherman expositor. Did not Christ say, do this in remembrance of me? That didn't go over well. Immediately they lit the fire 
Fox says his, bur- his legs were so quickly consumed by the flames that his body briskly fell over and burned. John Hollier was taken to the stake, bound with a chain, placed in a pitch barrel. Fire was applied to the reeds and the wood. As he began to burn, people started throwing books into the fire to be burned with him. One of the books was on the communion service. It was a book that countered Catholic teaching on the Lord's Supper, taught salvation through faith alone. So Hollier caught the book, held it high above the flames, opened it, and read it joyfully, out loud, until the fire and smoke deprived him of sight. Then he pressed the book to his heart, thanking God for giving him this precious gift in his last moments. And it wasn't just men. Agnes Snoth, Anne Wright, Joan Soule, Joan Katmer, four women alongside one man, John Lomas, questioned concerning transubstantiation, sentenced to burn together on two stakes in one fire, where Fox says they sang hosannas together until the breath of life was extinct. So are we hearing this? Why did these reformers die? Don't miss it. They died for the Lord's Supper. They died because they knew that Rome's doctrine of real presence undercut gospel grace. For if receiving communion involves receiving Christ, if eating the communion feast is necessary to experience Christ's forgiveness, then man's merit becomes a means of obtaining Christ's mercy. And the reformers would have nothing to do with it. Doctrine like this was decisive for them. Truth like this was not trivial for them. So a pastor looks into the eyes of his wife and 11 children, one of whom he's never even held. A fisherman looks in the eyes of his wife and his children, including the little boy who first read the gospel to him. And together they say, salvation by God's mercy, separate from our merit, is worth our lives. Salvation's all of mercy, kids. My bride, salvation's all of mercy. If we lose that, we lose everything. We have hope, not in our merit, only in his mercy, not in our merit, in his merit. One Protestant man was sentenced to be beheaded. History says he went cheerfully to his place of execution. When he arrived at the blocks, he was surrounded by friars, one of whom bent down, whispered in his ear, I know you have great reluctance publicly to abjure your faith, so just whisper your confession in my ear and I will absolve your sins. Protestant man loudly replied back to him, Trouble me not, friar, for I have confessed my sins to God and obtained absolution through the merits of Jesus Christ. Then he turned to his executioner and said, Let me not be pestered with these men. Perform your duty. At which point his head was struck off at a single blow. Oh, Mark Dever began this week with the great word imputation, the righteousness of Christ credited to our account by the sheer mercy of God. He showers righteousness on sinners just like we're his son. I remember when my wife and I engaged in the year before we were married, we were living totally different lives. I was finishing college, living on little income, actually no income, had no cash flow, scraping by during my last semesters, eating ramen noodles for most of my meals. Meanwhile, Heather had graduated from college, was teaching in elementary school, which meant she had an income. She had cash flow, so she didn't have to eat ramen noodles. After 12 months of waiting to be married, we finally stood 
in front of a crowd of our friends and family ready to commit our lives to each other. And on that day, I received so many wonderful things, the most important of which was a beautiful, godly wife. But do you know what else I received on that day? Cash flow. It was glorious. At one moment, I stood there with nothing in my bank account. I said two words, I do. And all of a sudden, my bank account was full. And I didn't have to do anything to earn it. I didn't have to go to her school, teach her, five-year-old kids. I didn't have to get a job anywhere else for that matter. Simply because my life was now united with hers, praise God, everything that belonged to her became mine. Oh, brothers and sisters, in a much, much greater way, when we come to Jesus, we put our faith in him, we trust in him, praise God. At that moment, everything that belongs to him becomes ours. And not because of any work we have ever done and will ever do, but solely because of the work he's done for me and you. Praise God. Salvation is found solely in God's mercy, separate from our merit. He, Jesus has lived the life we could not live. He has died the death we deserve to die. And Jesus has conquered the enemy we could not conquer. He has risen from the dead. And simply, solely, by faith and his love for us, we can be cleansed of all our heinous sin and reconciled to a holy God to know and enjoy him forever and ever. This is the greatest news in all the world. Which leads to the third truth here in Psalm 51 that these reformers believed. They believed love like this was worth losing their lives to proclaim. They believed that love like this was worth losing their lives to proclaim Verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. See it. See how washing before God Washing by God inevitably leads to worship of God. And then see how washing from God inevitably leads to witness for God. I'm going to teach this to transgressors and sinners. And it makes sense. Possession of this good news compels proclamation of this good news. And this is where we must be careful not to miss the point. Please listen to me closely. These martyrs did not die just because they believed the gospel. They died because they broadcast the gospel. They didn't die just because they studied the gospel. They died because they spoke it. Persecution only rises when proclamation resounds. If you stay silent about your faith, you stay safe from persecution. It's when you speak about your faith that you now step into persecution. 
And that's what these reformers were doing. They were sharing it in their homes. They were teaching it in their churches. They were proclaiming it in their towns. And it cost them everything they had. John Rogers had a choice that Sunday after Mary came to London. He could preach a good sermon from a random text. He could keep his life. He could keep his pastorate. He could continue as dad and husband. Or he could preach a gospel sermon filled with Reformation truth and he could lose his life. John Rogers chose the latter. Why? Because he couldn't keep this good news to himself. He didn't just love the gospel. He loved people who needed the gospel. And he was willing to give his life so they might know it. And right before he died, that's exactly what he did. He exhorted everyone watching his execution to embrace doctrines of gospel grace and Fox concludes, by his death, he demonstrated the reality of the ancient observation that the blood of the saints is the seed of the church. For instead of being intimidated by the severity of his sufferings, multitudes were encouraged by his magnanimous example. And many who had no religion were led, by watching this, led to inquire into the cause for which pious, learned, and benevolent men were so contented to lay down their lives. And thus, They were changed from atheists or Catholics by the grace of God to the profession of the gospel. Apparently, when you know the depth of God's love for sinners, you'll lose your life for their salvation. They believed that their depravity was deserving of damnation. They believed that salvation was found solely in God's mercy, not in their merit. And they believed that love like this was worth losing their lives to proclaim. So how shall we live? In light, yes, of the examples of these reformers, but far more importantly, based on the exposition of the text, how shall we live? I offer us three exhortations as we close this conference. Number one, brothers, pastors, let us prioritize theological precision among God's people. Let us prioritize theological precision among God's people. Kevin, John, both used this word yesterday. I want to bring it back today. I trust that it's clear after these last three days, doctrine matters. Theology matters. How we understand God's word matters. How we carry out God's worship matters. The Lord's Supper matters. We live in a day We know this, where doctrine like we're discussing is diluted and pragmatism is prized in its place. The deceptive danger of just doing what works regardless of God's word. The subtle snare, slippery slope that inevitably surfaces when we disconnect methodology from theology. This tantalizing temptation to twist God's truth in an attempt to make sermons more palatable or strategies more successful. I lead a missions organization focused on planting churches around the world. I see the plague of pragmatism everywhere I turn. From insider movements to man-centered methodologies, so much of contemporary missiology, instead of starting with God's word, starts with the world. And ask, well, what's working where? And missionaries begin devising mission strategies based on pragmatic observation instead of biblical foundation. Now, sure, we go to Scripture in order to try to back up what we're doing, but there's a critical difference between looking to Scripture for permission to do what we think is best and looking to Scripture for direction according to what God has said is best. But the pressure's there to produce statistics 
After all, how are we going to boost morale in the field? How are we going to raise money back home? I received a flyer from a missions organization in my mail saying, for $20 a month, you can plant a church a month in said country. We don't want to talk about the low cost of pastors and the return rates in their reports. Thousands and thousands of conversions recorded, churches planted across said country. It's not an outlier organization. I didn't know whether to weep in sadness or wail in anger. Brothers, do we realize what's at stake here? Do we realize what we're doing around the world in diluting the doctrines of conversion and the church? We're not just belittling the bride for whom Christ spilled his blood. We're devaluing his word in favor of our work. We're defaming his reputation for our renown. Practices like this prostitute the nations for the sake of our numbers, and we must repent. But here's the deal. It's not just overseas. It's here. Missionaries are doing there what they've seen modeled here, and the churches who've sent them and the pastors who've trained them. You say, well, I'm not training missionaries. Seminaries and mission organizations are doing that. No, you're doing that. The people who will plant churches around the world are learning the church from you, pastor. Train them well. Train them to love God's word. Train them to love God's gospel. Train them to love and value and esteem the church. Train them to love the Lord's Supper. And just in case that's not communicating in the positive, they put it in the negative. Stop sending missionaries who have a low view of God's word. Stop sending missionaries who have uncertain, unclear, minimalistic, man-centered understandings of God's gospel. Stop sending missionaries who don't know how to define and direct and defend the church with doctrinal precision. Stop sending missionaries who don't love the Lord's Supper. All that it means and all that it stands for, nominal Christianity is not what the nations need. Lazy approaches to theology, lethargic attitudes to truth won't cut it across the anti-Christian cultures of the world. So brothers, train and send missionaries and be men for whom precise attention to the doctrines of Scripture, salvation, the church, even the Lord's Supper is more precious to you than life itself. Let us prioritize theological precision among God's people. Second. Let us mobilize for sacrificial mission among all peoples. Let us mobilize for sacrificial mission among all peoples. As we have seen, the need is great for salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to be preached here. In our culture, across our culture, most of us live and pastor Here in North America, this conference is aimed at equipping us to live and pastor faithfully in North America. But I'm convinced we would be remiss if we didn't intentionally lift our eyes for just a moment to look beyond where most of us live and most of us pastor. Surely the Reformers beckon us to at least lift our eyes to Europe to the countries where they died for the sake of the gospel. In the UK, where Rogers and so many of these martyrs lost their lives, I'm told that if you're in your 20s, there's a 
100% chance that not only do you not go to church and not only are you not a follower of Christ, but there's a 97% chance you don't even know a follower of Christ. In Luther's Germany, a mere 2% of the population believes the gospel of God's grace. Practically unreached, Germany. There's about twice as many Muslims in Germany as there are Christians. Keep traveling westward to Europe's intersection with Asia. Come to Turkey. 80 million people in Turkey. You know how many of these Turks are followers of Christ? About 5,000. There's twice as many Christians in this room than there are among 80 million Turks. Almost 80 million people. Completely unreached. Which doesn't just mean lost. So there's a difference between lost and unreached. So people are just as lost in Turkey as they are in Tennessee. They're apart from people, apart from God, apart from Christ, they're lost. But here's the difference. There's a few churches in Tennessee. And there's Christians in Tennessee. Not a lot of churches in Turkey. Not a lot of Christians there. They don't have access to the gospel. They don't know a Christian. They don't have a church to see the gospel visibly portrayed and hear the gospel verbally proclaimed. They're unreached by the gospel. That's what it means to be unreached. They don't have access to the gospel. That's why we don't say in our churches, I don't know why we talk about unreached people all around the world. There's unreached people in my office. There's unreached people in my neighborhood. Don't say that. Those people aren't unreached. Say, well, how do you know? Because they're in your office. They're in your neighborhood. They have access to the gospel. How do you know? You're it. Talk about people. Don't have access to this good news. They don't have access. They've never heard it. And if something doesn't change, they're going to die without ever even hearing it. And based on Psalm 51 and the testimony of all scriptures, they're going to go to hell without ever even hearing about how they could have gone to heaven. This is not right. This cannot be tolerable for us. What will it take for the concept of unreached peoples to become totally intolerable to us in the church? I sat there last night listening to John Piper's sermon, just overwhelmed by God's grace to me. I was born into a place in the world where I've heard the gospel ever since the day I was born. Thinking about the fact that I had nothing to do with where I was born. Why was I born here? And not in Turkey. Saudi Arabia or Somalia. I don't have an answer to that question. Apart from God's sovereign grace. But here's what I do know. I didn't receive the sovereign grace so that I can sit back and say, God ordained for me to be reached and God ordained for them to be unreached. That's just the way it is. No. No, God ordained for them to be reached. 
Revelation 5, 9, Jesus shed his blood to ransom, to purchase people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. He ransomed them for a reason. Jesus ransomed them so they might be reached by him. You know what? He's ordained you and me to be the ones to reach them. His church, sinners saved by this gospel. Just think about what we heard last night. We know the primary problem for every person in the entire world. We heard it last night. They're all in bondage. Everybody, 7.2 billion people in the world in bondage. 2 Corinthians 4, 4. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel the glory of Christ. So what do they need? We saw it last night. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. They need God to give the light of the knowledge of the glory, knowledge of his glory in the face of Christ. But here's the question. How's he going to do it? How's that going to happen? How is God going to shine light, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, into blind minds, 2 Corinthians 4, 4? The answer is right in the middle. 2 Corinthians 4, 5. We preach Christ. See it. Feel it. Realize it. We know the problem for every person in the world, and we have the answer for every person in the world. So preach it. Proclaim it. Brothers, there is an eternal cancer that's killing the nations, and we have the cure. The gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. They need to hear it. Keep traveling across Asia to India, where right now, right now, a hundred million Hindus are coming together for a Hindu festival called Kumbh Mela. It's the largest religious gathering in the world. We think 10,000 people is a lot of people, and it is. Talked about a hundred million of them who will come together, strip down to nothing, cover themselves with ashes, then bathe in a contaminated river that they believe will cleanse them from all their sins. A hundred million of them. Brothers, we've got to tell them only Jesus can cleanse you from your sins. Somebody's got to tell them only Jesus can cleanse you from your sins. Or go to Iran, the northern Luri people, 1.5 million of them. No churches, zero churches, no scriptures. They don't have the Bible. The good news of the gospel is not in their language. So, so I've just got to ask at the close of this conference on the Reformation in light of reformers like William Tyndale and John Rogers who died so that people could read the Bible, I'm just compelled to ask who's going to die so the Northern Lurie can read the Bible? Who's going to die so that Hindus in India can be cleansed and freed from bondage to bathing in a contaminated river? Who's going to die so they can live? You might think saying die just sounds too dramatic here, but it's the right word because the northern Lurie people aren't going to read their Bible in their language without someone giving their life to getting it in their language. And 100 million Hindus celebrating Kumela aren't going to hear the gospel without thousands of Christians leaving behind the pursuits, pleasures, possessions, and plaudits of this world to get it to them. So brothers, pastors across this room, let us die to our desire for a nice, comfortable Christian spin on the American dream, and let us shepherd the members of our churches to do the same. Let us mobilize our sacrificial mission among all peoples, and ultimately, third exhortation, prioritize theological precision among God's people. Let's mobilize for sacrificial mission among all peoples. 
Third, let's live, lead, and long for the day when reformation will be consummation. Let's live, lead, and long for the day when reformation will be consummation. So we heard in the very first message of this conference that the reformation is not over. 500 years ago, men and women claiming the gospel of God's grace, and they were being burned alive for it. But it's not just then. It's happening today. We have brothers and sisters right now who are imprisoned in North Korea. We have brothers and sisters in Pakistan whose church buildings are being charred. We have a few brothers and sisters in Somalia. If they share the truth of salvation with their family, they will have their throats slit. All over the world, people are dying today for the gospel of God's grace. The Reformation is indeed not over. But don't you long for the day when it will be over. Don't you long for the day when, like we heard yesterday, our waiting will conclude when the days of sanctification will finally give way to the day of glorification. John MacArthur was preaching from Revelation. I was reminded of what he writes just a few chapters later. Revelation 6, verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, Holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Just read this, thinking about these martyrs have been reading about. Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. John realizes the number of martyrs is not complete. And the line of men and women slain for the sovereign Lord lives on in our day. But praise be to God, we have a promise here that one day these figurative fires of martyrdom are going to be finished. And the kingdom of God is going to come. And the will of God is going to be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's a day worth living for, leading for, longing for. The reformers were fixed on that day. French ambassador who was there at John Rogers' death wrote home, and this is how he described the scene. He said, it was as if this man was walking to his wedding. Roland Taylor, who I mentioned earlier, It was about two miles from the place where he would die. The sheriff asked him how he felt. His reply, God be praised, Master Sheriff, never better. For now, I'm almost at home. I lack but just two styles to go over, and I am even at my father's house. John Bradford, who was burned with the 19-year-old John Leaf that I mentioned earlier, kissed the stake, turned to the 19-year-old, saying, Be of good comfort, brother, for we shall have a merry supper with the Lord this night. Helen Stark, a mom with a newborn child, was sentenced to be put in a sack and drowned. Her husband, also sentenced to die, but separate from her. He would die first, then her. So she followed him to his execution, gave him a kiss, and said, Husband, rejoice, for we have lived together many joyful days, but this day in which we must die ought to be most joyful unto us both, because we must have joy forever. 
Therefore, I will not bid you good night, for we shall suddenly meet with joy in the kingdom of heaven. She was ta- after watching her husband die, she was taken to the place where she would be drowned. She entrusted her newborn child and other children to the neighbor's care and was plunged to her death. All these men and women knew this world was not their home. They were living, leading, longing for another world. They were looking forward to a wedding feast and a marriage supper. And brothers, sisters, one day we're going to join them there. And that's a day worth living, leading, longing for. Brothers, pastors, we in this conference deserve damnation. And we have been delivered from never-ending death based on nothing we have done. Not one of us is in this room by our own merit. We're only here by his mercy. God loves us so much. And love like this is worth losing our lives to proclaim. With theological precision among God's people for sacrificial, safety-surrendering, world-saking, life-giving, death-defying mission among all peoples until the day when we gather with every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And we won't be talking about reformation anymore. Instead, we'll be experiencing the consummation of our King and His kingdom.
This concludes today's series of Unity in Christ. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.